Well, we finally made it. How many years? Uh, it's uh, actually two years to the month since, well, since we started the Pick 100. It feels like so much more, doesn't it? <laughs> no. Okay. Well. No, I don't think it does. We were methodical and caring and thoughtful. And at times it's lazy. <laughs> yeah, and just you know forgetful. Not right there with proper motivation. But we're here now. We can literally see the end, Jeff. Yes, we're at the end. Our six top albums of all time culminating in each of our favorite albums of all time. Yes. And quick disclaimer, this list becomes perishable five seconds after we finish it. (laughs) From Portland, Oregon, I'm Jeff Payne. I'm Kevin Toon. This is the Pick 100. So again, two years after we started, and when we started, we talked about how, you know, these are our favorite albums, not the best albums of all time. Mm -hmm. And so now as we get up to our uh, top five, our top six, our top two, Mm -hmm. it's a good time to remind people that we don't think these are the best albums of all time. We think they're our favorite. They're the ones that resonated with us the most in our lifetimes and currently. Oh, and we should also point out that, you know, for fans of music in general, we fully acknowledge that there are some obvious... I guess omissions. You know, we'll get maybe get to that after we're done. But uh, I've been thinking about that as as I've been preparing for this last little group here, and I'm thinking, whoa, there are artists that people are going to go, how could you not have blank on that list? Yeah, and as I look back at some of the choices I made two years ago, I think ah, probably should have been a little higher, so forth. Oh. And as we kind of joked at the beginning, yeah, if we do this list again in five years, which is now only three years away, <laughs> <laughs> right, right, I, right, I think some of the ordering would be different. But I'm, I'm, I've actually been pretty solid on my top six for really for the last two years. I'm pretty sure that I've settled on this top six by the time we started recording this. I'm, I'm not as solid as you on that number I'm, I'm more like yeah i'm really solid with one two and three and yeah, then so after you, that you move some around oh well i could yeah. do i mean just even right now i'm like oh maybe we should do this over and i can move that one to four yeah it's interesting because i when i got up to this uh to prepare for this episode i'm thinking oh really do i really think and then i listened to the albums again and i thought you know what i, right. I was right i was right from the start I'm, I'm glad for you. I'm glad that that's working out in, in your favor and, and you're, you're sleeping comfortably with that. Me, on the other hand, I'm like, as you get closer and closer to the top, the margin between picks is so thin. You know, it's, it's, it's harder for me to say, oh, yeah, number six and, and just that is definitively higher and appropriately positioned over number seven. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm not quite there. Well, like you, similar to you, my top three is probably more solid than number four through ten. Yeah. And we also have a lot of pick line calls to uh, feature. And as the legend himself, Dave Letterman, would say, these are actual calls from From actual listeners. (laughs) Yes. All right. Exactly. I like it. But first, in the last episode, we covered Kevin's number seven, which was Fleetwood Mac Rumors, which is also my number six. And we did sample through the entire album then. We're not going to cover it again now, but there is something to talk about between the last episode and the recording of this episode. Fleetwood Mac lost its legendary keyboardist and singer, Christine McVie. Yeah, Jeff, really sad news to end the year and feel like the rock world in general just lost a really important voice. Uh, actually, during the recording of the show, we lost a few people that we covered. Uh, Eddie Van Halen passed away when we were doing the first episode, I believe, and uh, then Dusty Hill from ZZ Top. But this one really is kind of a, hits a little harder. I mean, 
be honest, it surprised me that she was 79. Yeah, me too. Because you, know, you grew up with this band, and they're the age of my parents. Right. It also felt like the rock at the center of the band is now gone. It feels like with all the turmoil they had over the years between the members, she always seemed to be this steadying force kind of in the middle that kept them you know, from fracturing too much. I think that's a good point, because also Stevie Nicks, of course, had the biggest solo career, and uh, Christy McVie, uh, as you've said before, kind of overshadowed by Stevie Nicks quite a bit uh, in as far as the fame of this band goes. We're playing now You Make Love and Fun, one of my favorite songs uh, by the band, one of my favorite songs by her, and I think it uh, is right up there with Songbird as, as her best work on this album. For sure, and I think what we've lost to Jeff is, I would describe it as one of rock's most distinct voices. I just can't come up with anyone else that sounds like her. She did have a couple of solo hits, and immediately when you heard them, you, you knew it was her. I'll be really curious to see you know, if there is another iteration of Fleetwood Mac now because of this loss. Yes, so R.I.P. Christine McVie, thank you for being a great part of music history and, of course, several entries onto both of our lists on this show. I, I always love the part at the end of this song here, Kevin, where uh, Lindsay's guitar comes in, too. I like that, yeah, yeah. Now, he's so underrated. His guitar contributions, I mean, he's, you almost can't say enough about that. Anyway, that was Fleetwood Mac, Kevin's number seven, my number six. So we start the show with your number six. So at number six for me, summer and fall of 1984, if you haven't already figured it out, Prince takes over the musical and pop cultural landscape in America and beyond supplanting Michael Jackson and Bruce Springsteen, first with one of his biggest hits that you're hearing right here, and then the movie and soundtrack that just made him a legend. Dig if you will the picture of you and I engaged in a kiss. So from 1984, the album, of course, is the Purple Rain soundtrack. And this song is When Doves Cry, Prince's first number one hit on the Billboard pop charts, and a song, strangely enough, without a bass line for an 80s tune that seems almost impossible. But this is one of Prince's most enduring songs. In fact, it actually recharted on Billboard right after Prince died in 2016. Purple Rain was simply a phenomenon. It seemed like you heard and saw Prince every time you turned on your favorite radio station, MTV, and then he was on the big screen. From the Purple Rain soundtrack, this is the second track, Take Me With You, which was eventually released as a single in 1985. Never quite understood why this wasn't a bigger hit. For me, this album will always be the sound of a time in my teenage years when I was able to step into and actively be a participant in the social scene at my high school. This music is what it seemed like everyone was listening to, and the movie was must-see viewing. 
A big reason, I think, was the overtly sexual nature of Prince's material, both in the music and on screen. Prince was dark, and he was mysterious and dangerous, and most of the songs were anything but squeaky clean. So there was this kind of extra thrill for a teenager and this sense of risk and rebellion in owning and playing these tunes. So wait a second, I have this image now of you like being McLovin, like the guy that doesn't get any attention, <laughs> and you can finally feel like you're part of the gang because you're listening to Purple Rain? Well, <laughs> it's, uh, it, I, it's a transition time. It's like, so you were a senior, but for me, it was finally being an upperclassman. So that was kind of the dynamic there is, is you know, once you ascended into that upper two, then you were kind of part of the, part of the scene, and loving this album played into that. I, oh yeah, most most definitely. Just because I had the good fortune of <laughs> my parents going on vacation, uh, like the first couple of months of junior year, and oops, I decided to have a party, <laughs> and uh, you know, suddenly there's you know 50 juniors and seniors in my backyard after a football game, and we throw this on the stereo, right? It just, and then. Then that sort of spawned, you know, other musical sharing and interests, that kind of stuff. But I think, yeah, if you if you were dialed into what was what was cool, yeah. part of that was you being dialed into the music. Okay, so Jeff, I'm going to break with format a little bit here. I'm actually going to play a B-side, partially because you covered pretty much every song on Purple Rain when uh, you did your segment. Yeah, well, but I'm glad you're playing this song. This is cool. Okay, so. Uh, this is a B-side, and back when I, in 1985, when I was a teenager, I had no idea what a B-side was. But this song is so well known today by Prince fans. Erotic City is the name, and it was not part of the original Purple Rain soundtrack, and it wasn't in the movie. It was side two, or B-side, of the fourth single from the soundtrack, I Would Die For You. So fans really didn't get it until like late 84, first part of 85. But in the spring of 85, in my little world, specifically at my high school community, parties, dances, whatever, this was the Prince song that everyone wanted to hear. The Catholic school where you played a song that says we can fuck until dawn? Yep. Okay. Yep. Oh, not only that, but... Uh, Center, I don't care. I mean, we're all like, you know, going to mass on Sunday, and oh yeah, no, this was big time. Yeah, I, I got the I got the maxi single. I think when oh, I was yeah, in high school, yeah. and they, they, they would play this at high school dances, and uh, we I, I believe we managed to slip it in when we DJed Mormon church dances. <laughs> well, and here's the thing: is is it was actually pretty easy to uh, just play it off like, oh no, they're saying funk. We can funk until the dawn, right? Yep. So, so Jeff, this was about the time I had started to try my hands at uh, DJ work as well. So I'm a junior in high school, and we had a series of maybe four to five dances. So Erotic City wasn't quite the closer, you know, of the evening when I was DJing the dances at the Central Catholic High School. But I remember it had to be right there at the end, right? It's, you know, sort of a climactic moment, if you oh, will. Oh, yeah, yes. Right? So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure this was my final three, you know, sort of like exclamation point on the, on the playlist. Five Minutes of Funk by Houdini, followed by Erotic City, and then Sexual Healing by Marvin Gaye. <laughs> oh, wow. Slam dunk, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, being that it was a Catholic school, that not only was there this risk 
in this seven minute, 42 second little jam that kept repeating week and fuck until the dawn. But it was quite the thrill when you were able to pull it off and kind of walk away and go, yeah, I just DJed that, right? So Jeff, fair to say, you said this when we reviewed this. My number 22. 22 on your list. I think we both agree it was really the soundtrack of the 84-85 school year. My junior year, your senior year. For me, first year as an upperclassman, first year of really being part of the social scene. It was kind of a... But also... This was a gateway for me to really explore the Prince catalog. I bought the next four Prince albums after this. All of that world kind of opened up for me because of Purple Rain. I obviously have it ranked quite a bit higher than you, but I think for both of us, definitely an album that it that provided the backdrop for, for a lot of fun times and sort of coming of age times in high school. I do think you one-upped me, though. You got to go to the show. I mean, you lived up in the Puget Sound. That's right, Sound, I went to the concert. And and Prince came nowhere near the Willamette Valley. So, you know, I was not quite at that age where I was able to, you know, I, I wasn't quite as daring and rebellion to find a way to get up there. There were some kids from our high school that went to the show. You mean up in Tacoma? Didn't come, he didn't come Didn't in? come anywhere into Oregon. You recalled in our last segment when you had this record of... Uh, <laughs> Prince on stage with a guitar that he would stroke the neck and some fluid would come yes, flying yes. out of it. I mean, I, could, I mean, just 16-year-old me is so pissed that I missed that. Well, I have to say, I'm very surprised at this because when you picked 1999 in that same episode in the yeah. 20s, I think, yeah. I thought, oh yeah, he likes 1999 and I like Purple Rain. That's kind of the way it was. And so I didn't expect this, but then you said when I reviewed Purple Rain that it was going to be higher and I go, oh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just a, a sound. It's it's a, so I guess sort of a, a landscape or a tapestry of of music that's just connected to a pivotal and important moment in your life. So, for me, number six, Purple Rain soundtrack. The pick line. Hey, this is Bob calling from Burbank, longtime caller, and uh, I have nothing better to do. I just want to tell you guys thanks for putting on such a great pick cast. And I kind of consider you two my favorite celebrity podcast couple. I like to refer to you amongst friends as Jeff Evan Paytoon. Anyway, I'd like to put in a vote for an album by a new artist named Steven Sanchez. He has an album out called Easy On My Eyes, and I saw him a few months ago on the Seth Meyers show, and then later on uh, Colbert. And honestly, he sounds like a cross between Roy Orbison and Buddy Holly with this kind of soulful currency about him. I, I don't know. I think it's worth listening to his album. It's available on Spotify and all those other records. Spotify. I don't, know. I don't know music. I just know that this is good stuff and it kind of gives me goosebumps to listen to. Anyway, thank you guys. Good job. Keep picking away. So this is See the Light from Mr. Steven Sanchez. Roy Orbison and who else? Buddy Holly. Interesting. Feels like maybe some Ed Sheeran ought to be mixed in there too. Bob's been a great contributor to the pick line, and this is actually, I think, his first legitimate pick where he's picking an artist that he actually likes, an album he actually likes, whereas before he picked things like uh, Songs of the Apocalypse that you can dance to. From the 80s. 
right? Yeah. yeah, right. Right. So thanks, Bob, for that pick. And you can hear that song uh, on our playlist for this episode, as well as every other song we play in this episode at thepickcast.com. It's an honor to be uh, Bob's favorite celebrity pick cast couple, too. That's right. That's right. That's a good, I've got a good feeling over that. All right, so we move on to number five. Now, Kevin, we've had a lot of great guest number readers mm-hmm. in the Pick 100, and I think it's time that we pay tribute to the majority of them. There's some you definitely don't feel that are deserving of tribute. No, some of them that just didn't read the number five, I see. basically. You can do this. You can relax. You will be okay. Five. Number five. Five. Number of the day is five. Shake it loose, cool down. Five. Cinco. The number five. It's such a bloody useless number. <laughs> so you just edited fifty-five <laughs> down to five. <laughs> Okay, that's yeah. Okay, I can't drive. Okay, whatever. <laughs> I just have this picture of you splicing tape back in the day. All right, under my voice, growing louder, is the sound that best represents my frequent drives across the state of Washington. As I drove from my hometown of Puyallup to my college town of Pullman, Washington. Most specifically, though, leaving Pullman after my swing shift at Godfather's Pizza <laughs> and driving through the night. Oh my god, I can't believe you did that. This track. With its spooky opening and grandiose organ overture was the perfect soundtrack for those nighttime drives across the silent and still wheat fields of the Palouse. This is the opening track to Elton John's epic double LP, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, from 1973. It is considered his magnum opus, usually considered his best album, and it is my fifth favorite album of all time. I'll talk about the album overall, but first we need to discuss the first four songs, as this record is front-loaded with most of the hits. The instrumental we're hearing now is Funeral for a Friend, composed by Elton John as the kind of music he'd like to have played at his funeral. I can distinctly remember in my senior year of high school, 1984-85, my friend Donnie Bowen introducing me to this record and a few others by John. I can still picture him playing the air organ as this song played. It was unlike most of what I was listening to at the time, ACDC, Van Halen's 1984, Prince, Deep Purple, anything on MTV. Honestly, that was exciting. I mostly knew Elton John from his 80s hits like I'm Still Standing or the huge earlier hit duet with Kiki D, Don't Go Breaking My Heart. But Donnie opened up his entire back catalog for me and kind of let me in on a little secret. 
There were artists from the 70s other than Led Zeppelin, The Rolling Stones, and Doors that were cool to listen to. And one of them was that somewhat cheesy pop singer, Elton John. Donnie was already what I would soon become, a big fan and aficionado of rock and roll. And this album may have been the biggest key to opening the door to the lengths such a pursuit could take me. And it's kind of wild that an instrumental did that, but alas, it is seamlessly connected to Love Lies Bleeding, and indeed, together, they are always counted as one track. So, Kevin, I remember when we were first working at our beloved KUGR, yeah, of course. College Radio Channel. Right. I was on the overnight shifts in the early days, like midnight to six. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there was no one there, you could kind of root around the massive album collection. Right. And I remember Xeroxing the lyric sheets to this album <laughs> because we didn't have the internet back then. Of course. So I couldn't look that stuff up, and I had—I think I had a cassette of this album, so it didn't have the lyrics. Ah, there you go. Okay. So I took the photocopies back to my dorm and memorized the words to this song and a few others. Pretty exciting point of my freshman year. <laughs> was this a, was this in the rotation? Yeah, it was actually on one of the white cards, so super yeah, low right. rotation. Right, right. Um, and I think a lot I, of times after ten o'clock. Yeah, night, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I probably searched through the white cards and one one night and found it, <laughs> and maybe it slipped forward to the beginning and I played it uh, on my right. overnight shift. Yes, definitely. Well, and of course, you know this this is uh, probably also. In that special category, along with um, Inagata De Vida and I guess even uh, Stairway to Heaven, of put it on and go have a smoke break. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, these two songs together, which again is always one track. Right. Over 11 minutes. Yeah, so the door, the, the end by the doors would, yeah. would be in that, that, even LA Woman, really. Goodbye, no, no I never knew you at all. You had the grace to go. You know, basically now I've given you the backstory and largely why this, the only Elton John album on my list, is ranked so high. That epic 11-minute opener is definitely my favorite track he's ever done. But the second track is perhaps his most famous, but it actually wasn't that big upon its release. And it seems to me you lived your life like a candle in the wind. In fact, it wasn't even released as a single in the U.S. in 1973, only the U.K. where it reached number 11. And the song is an ode to Marilyn Monroe, referred to in the song by her birth name, Norma Jean. Songwriter Bernie Taupin said he had no particular affection for Monroe, but wrote the song about the idea of fame or youth or somebody being cut short in the prime of their life. He said it could just as easily have been about Janis Joplin, James Dean, or Jim Morrison. And fittingly, it became a hit in the U.S. much later, when John released a version called Candle in the Wind 1997 as a tribute to Princess Diana after her death. But nine years before that, a live version of the song hit number two in the U.S. in 1988. So it's definitely a song with a lasting impression. The third track, completing the first of the four sides of the two vinyl discs, is a song they released in the U.S. instead of Candle in the Wind, and it topped the U.S. charts at number one, Benny and the Jets. Benny and the Jets. Oh, the 
finally starting off side two is the title track, a song about the regrets of leaving home to pursue fame and fortune, sometimes called his very best song. Being a two-record set, there's a lot here, 17 tracks in total. Not all of it is great. Jamaica Jerkoff is skippable and just kind of dumb. But for the most part, it's hard to make a case for any of his albums being better than this one. This one is called All the Girls Love Alice. Bernie wrote it about the gay lifestyle in London, about a young lesbian named Alice, who many of the married women in town like to, let's say, visit. It was something John was singing about before he was out of the closet himself, and Taupin was writing about decades before such concepts were in the mainstream. All the young girls of Alice, young Alice they say. Not just a secret lifestyle, but also the isolation and anonymity of leading a double life. Kevin, I didn't care a lick about Elton John. Mm-hmm. Sure, some of his tunes were catchy, danceable. But when I found this, and also his other favorite of mine, Madman Across the Water, I was hooked. Yeah. And I played this so often between 84 and 87 that it just etched into my brain. Mm. And even though I would say many of the albums I've ranked lower than this are probably better works of art and certainly more impactful on music and culture than this album, I cannot deny that this rises to the top in terms of my favorites. You'd be hard-pressed to find an Elton John LP, particularly, I think, during that period. You mentioned Madman Across the Water. That that probably is the one yes, that gives yes. this one a run as his best. Uh, Punky Chateau, maybe a, maybe a close third, uh, just in terms of top-to-bottom quality. But I think that's a safe play, and even the, the hardcore Elton fans would probably you know, agree that this one probably sits at the top. I'm playing one last song here, uh, one that most people know, Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting, which, again did get rock radio play but i just i just must have missed it because when i first listened to this whole album through it was some it was basically new to me I don't remember this getting rock radio. Yeah. No, I, I really don't. Yeah. I just, I again, I, I wasn't all that aware of Elton until we were transitioning from the mid to late seventies. <laughs> and you mentioned "Don't Go Breaking My Heart." Yeah, I remember that. Um, that was like a summer tune that yeah, got a ton yeah. of, of radio airplay. I think even he and Kiki D uh, did an appearance on the Muppet Show performing that. <laughs> right, I, right. I believe that that's that to be true. I know he did a performance on the Muppet Show of Crocodile Rock. Um, but he was he was very much a hit radio guy, yeah. and because of how flamboyant he was, I don't know that he easily fit into rock as yeah. a genre either. So I almost got the sense that at that time, rock stations kind of avoided Elton. Probably, yeah. But and then of course the '80s, you know, there was some there's there some good stuff in the '80s, not great, some good stuff. You mentioned Candle in the Wind. I really didn't. I wasn't aware of that song until the 88 version right, came out. Right. This uh, Yellow Brick Road version sounds so much different when you really listen to it. Right. Guitar elements, uh, backing vocals, very, very different. Yeah. 
but you know, very similar, I think, to Stevie Wonder, who I've, I've mentioned uh, when I had one of his records in my list, that he had this absolute golden period at the beginning of the 70s. And I think that's true for Elton, too. As far back as 70, 71, but up to about 74, 75, just one after another. Great, great records. But not something that really entered my consciousness until even after college, uh, appreciating him in a, in a much broader sense. Yeah. As part of that appreciation, too, I, I'm just fascinated by the, the magic of the chemistry between uh, Elton and Bernie Taupin. I just yeah. think that's amazing. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know any other story like that in the history of rock or pop music. And, and they demonstrate it so well in Rocket Man, the movie. Elton, just this genius who can just, you know, hear music as, as only a genius can and then find a way to marry it to these wonderful lyrics that Toppin has these, you know, stacks of notebooks full of. It's just an amazing story. And for me, that adds to the thrill of listening to this music is the is the the bond and the chemistry between those two guys. That's lasted what, four decades. It's just well, lasted yeah. so long, right? And it's and and the best the best of Elton's material was always when he was collaborating with Bernie. There's a period in the late '70s where he's not, and the material really takes a dive. And then he starts to cut even even the '80s stuff that isn't as strong as the '70s stuff. The two of them reunited, and the 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 quality of it was there again. So I encourage everyone to explore 1970s Elton John, but make the top of your list, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, Double LP, my fifth favorite album of all time. Yes, I actually guessed this correctly, Jeff. I thought you, I mean, so, so I'm feeling pretty good so far about my guessing of your top five. Yeah, well, you thought I would slay you, but so far you're one for yeah. one. <laughs> okay, all right. I'll enjoy the moment because I don't think it's going to last. All right, my number five pick, released in October of 1969, it's Led Zeppelin II, one of the most influential rock albums of all time, and the one that put Zeppelin at the top of the charts. It was the biggest selling album in America in 69, knocking the Beatles' Abbey Road from the number one spot on the charts and keeping the Rolling Stones' Let It Bleed from the top spot. All told, Led Zeppelin II spent 138 weeks on the charts and climbed to number one in February of 1970. Apple Music calls this album, quote, the moment the band figured out how to wield the blues as the sound of both this world and the world of a distant beyond. What you hear is four young British men absorbing American blues, not as a progressive pose, but arcane knowledge. This is the third track, The Lemons Song, which to me exemplifies Zepp's simultaneous exploring and paying tribute to the blues. It's also a pretty blatant copy of a blues tune called Killing Floor by blues legend Howling Wolf. It's actually one of a handful of songs that got Zeppelin into some legal trouble for not properly giving credit to a blues artist whose song they were sampling. So I'm going to cover some of the lesser-known tracks in this tribute. This one is track four, Thank You. Not really bluesy, but a beautiful piece from singer Robert Plant, a love letter to his wife at that time. 
the sun refused to shine I would still be loving you Zeppelin II was conceived, recorded, and produced during a very chaotic period for this band, spanning January to August of 69, right after their debut album was released and during the completion of four European and three American tours. Each song was separately recorded, mixed, and produced at various studios in the UK and North America. The album was written on tour during periods of a couple of hours between concert. They'd find a studio, they'd book it, the recording process would get underway, and, and it resulted in this spontaneity and an urgency which is reflected in the sound. You get a good sense of that on the Lemon song, and this next track I want to play for you, the closer, Bring It On Home. Okay, Jeff, so for me, this record rates slightly higher than Zeppelin IV, which, you know, of course has its own legendary status. And I think for me, it comes down to the consistency of Zep 2 why I rated it a little bit higher. Zeppelin IV was just a few notches higher than this for me. And I think probably for a lot of Zepp fans, it's a coin flip. Now, hold up, wait. I'm taking credit for this because I'm pretty sure you thought four was the better album until I picked two as higher. Because <laughs> you, you, were you got me thinking. Yeah, you definitely got me thinking. Yes, and I specifically remember you singling out Four Sticks, Battle of Evermore. Going maybe, to California. Maybe you're going to so for me, Overplay was kind of a reason why I marked Zep 4 down a little bit. And you, you might be surprised to hear this, but for Zep 4, it actually came down to the fact that I'm really, I just am so done listening to Black Dog and Rock and Roll. I just don't, I just, I, every time I put that album on, I'm like, I've heard these songs so many flipping right. times and I just move on. Yeah. And with this one, there isn't that. Yeah. You know, I can stick with it. It's, it's just rock solid almost throughout. You know, Moby Dick might be the weak, weak yeah. moment on this one. I'm less in your camp on four, whereas I, I like Four Sticks and Battle of Evermore. I really well, like going to California. I do too. I do too. But it's the same. It's the same burnout level. I think. Yeah. It, it, it might be, but because to me, one and two are just are much more enjoyable for me to listen to now because they haven't been repeated as much. Where I can't let go of four is it just has three amazing, yes. just blow my mind top probably three of my top five zeppelin tunes with stairway to heaven misty mountain hop and when the levee breaks yep but you know top to bottom this just has more overall strength and no tribute of mine to zep 2 is going to not include track one i mean good god that little riff so legendary if you were introducing to someone to zep i think you got to start with this track you need cooling just and that that open and just oh my god just the the pounding and the the overall power of this tune anyway so a whole lot of love what is and what should never be heartbreaker living loving made ramble on triple shot by the way um 
all tier double shot all tier one track so yes definitely you get some credit there because you got me rethinking that and my sort of calibration of zep albums so this one's definitely sits at the top and then four slightly below that and that's how it's reflected in my ranking so that's my number five pick led zeppelin 2 1969 The Pick Line. Hey, Pick Line. This is Mike from Toluca Lake calling to let you know how much I've enjoyed your podcast. I'm often flooded with memories uh, prompted by the amazing music you've been featuring. One such memory was a live concert I saw at the Palladium in L.A. featuring Courtney Love's band Hole. I remember it clearly because it was one of my dearest and closest friend Jeff's birthday. And I felt so honored to be with him on this special day, seeing one of his favorite bands at the time. It was great joining him in the mosh pit as he thrashed around, and I'll never forget the excitement as Courtney Love passed over us during a stage dive. The joy on his face was unforgettable when he excitedly shouted, I think I touched her boob! Amazing night with my good friend, and it's etched in my memory. You know, it did sadden me a little when Jeff recalled going alone to this concert in your last episode and his depiction of his restraint from copying a feel from Kurt Cobain's widow uh, was different from my recollection. Anyway, thanks for the show. It's been very enjoyable and educational. In fact, I learned I had been mispronouncing the name of one of the bands all these years. Thanks to you, I now know it's called Rush. Keep up the good work. All right. So in my defense. Yes. I want to hear this. I, uh, it's tw- it's 2022, Jeff. So you got some explaining I to do. I totally forgot that Mike was with me. And <laughs> I, I can't figure out how that was. Although I think I saw garbage in the Palladium in the same location. Okay. And I possibly went to that one by myself. So I just okay. remembered... I misremembered that someone actually went with me to Hole, which I call my greatest concert experience in my lifetime. Um, <laughs> but I do vehemently deny uh, excitingly exclaiming that I touched her boob. Okay, good, good. That is the right play at this point in yes, time. Yes, yes. I, very I smart. definitely deny that. But uh, Mike, I'm sorry that I forgot your presence there. Obviously, I was very caught up in the mosh pit and... You know, you can't really stay with your buddy too much in a mosh pit unless you well, actually embrace him the entire time. Right. There's maybe, and maybe there's a nexus here of two things. Mike's telling of that story maybe comes from a little place of spitefulness because you forgot him. So now yeah. he's going to embellish no. his narrative and claim to the world that you, you know, were trying to cop a feel I, on Courtney. I absolutely uh, feel horrible for forgetting him, and I, uh, I do apologize, and I hope we can. We, we can move on. Number four. Okay, on to number four. And for me, we jump from 1973 back to the 90s. And of course, most of us will usually think of grunge when we first think of 90s music. Now, I remember I was fresh out of college and I dived headfirst into KROQ in Los Angeles and pretty much took everything they threw at me. I would buy CDs every month based on one cool song on the radio. So my CD rack became cluttered with... Flashes in the pan like Gin Blossoms, Blind Melon, Spin Doctors, and Toad the Wet Sprocket. Jesus Jones. Yeah. Okay, uh, good. A little better than those four. But anyway, but when Nirvana dropped Nevermind in 1991, you really could feel the ground shift. I picked Nirvana as my number 17 and their third studio release, In Utero, at number 51. But what has always resonated with me the most as both representing who these guys were and what they would become... 
is the only fully live album on either of our lists. Yes, I'm in that group. I'm cheering because I've nailed this one too. Fuck yeah. This is off our first record. Most people don't own it. Released in November 1994, about six months after Kurt Cobain's death, this is Nirvana MTV Unplugged in New York. love that they open with About a Girl, a tune from their pre-Nevermind first album, Bleach. Kurt even says most people don't own it, and it sets the stage for a live show that does not follow the typical path of being mostly a greatest hits collection. In fact, the only hit on this whole collection, the only song that was released as a single, is the second track, Come as you are from Nevermind. And it's pretty much why it gets one of the few cheers from the audience right, as the song starts, because it's one of the few songs they recognize. Come as you are, as you were, as I want you to be. This episode of the MTV series Unplugged was shot in New York on November 18th, 1993, only two months after their third album in utero had been released. From their three studio albums, this live album features only one track from Bleach, four from Nevermind, and three from In Utero. Although MTV wanted them to play more hits, the band included six cover songs, the first being from the Scottish alt-rock band The Vaseline. Jesus Wants Me For A Sunbeam is actually a parody song by The Vaselines of a children's Christian hymn and Nirvana changed it slightly to be Jesus doesn't want me for a sunbeam. To me, the covers on this collection are really the album's best tracks, and my favorite of all is a David Bowie cover, The Man Who Sold the World. recorded in November 93, and then it aired on MTV a month later, and then, tragically, Kurt died five months after that in April 94. After his death, there was a real hunger for unreleased Nirvana material, and this album was put together and released in November 94, a full year after the performance was recorded. By that time, Nevermind had been played to death, and In Utero had been surging over the airwaves for over a year. Oh no, not me. I dutifully bought the CD and quickly fell in love. It was not what I had expected, honestly. Even though I had seen the episode on TV, listening to it as an album is a different experience. With the visuals stripped away, it just inspired deep appreciation for Kurt's voice, for his sense of humor, and it really gave a glimpse of what this band could have been. It was a stripped down version of the band. They even included a cello and chose mostly their slower and more poppy songs. It became my Nirvana album of choice and to this day represents my favorite 90s grunge album, even though it isn't very grungy. Underneath the bridge, 
While the Bully cover is my favorite, I think the album's True Dynamite is its second half, starting with the Nevermind Closer, Something in the Way. Kurt brings out the Meat Puppets, a fairly obscure alternative rock band that had pretty much been doing the 90s grunge sound since the mid-80s. Brothers Chris and Kurt Kirkwood from the Meat Puppets joined the band on stage. Cobain sang lead and the brothers played guitars and sang harmonizing vocals. Many a hand has scaled the grand old face of the plateau. Kurt purposely chose Meat Puppet songs that would be tough for him to sing. I think you can hear that best here, where he has to go very low, then very high. Beautify the foothills, shake the many hands. Nothing on the top but a bucket and a mop and an illustrated book about birds. You see a lot up there, but don't be scared. Gonna eat when you got words. Again, I think the covers are the best part of this record, probably because it was a bold choice to not play all the hits and it was indeed fresh Nirvana music after Cobain's death. This is the second of three Meat Puppet songs called Oh Me. If I had to lose a mind, if I had to touch feeling. This album won the Grammy for Best Alternative Music Performance in 1996, one and a half years after its release. It's considered one of the best live albums of all time and is ranked at 279 on Rolling Stone's top 500 albums of all time. It was actually the first episode of the MTV Unplugged to include electric amplification and guitar effects and one of the few that was performed all the way through in one take. Cobain was reportedly pretty nervous about his performance and I think some of that comes across in bits of dialogue we hear between the songs. He insisted on running his guitar through an amplifier and effects pedals. It was kind of his security blanket. So Kevin, one critic called this album Nirvana's second masterpiece after Nevermind, and I've always agreed. Even though I put Nevermind at my number 17, I recognize that it's a more important record. Without it, this Unplugged album wouldn't exist. But Unplugged is the album that impacted me the most and is still my top 90s grunge pick. This is a great pick. You said that uh, you had seen it on television, then bought the CD, and listening to it was a completely different experience. Now, I never saw the video. So most recently was the first time, actually, that I listened to this all the way through with earbuds. And it was fascinating as, as really kind of a, a Cobain showcase. Yes. I mean, the, the other two just are there, but you, in, in the visuals that are in your head are just all about the guy. Chris Novoselic and uh, Dave Grohl are not mic'd. So they do they do talk to him and respond, but you can't barely hear them because they don't have mics. Yeah, which is you know there's an irony to that because of how you know had he lived he would probably puke at that observation, right? Because he he was all about the camaraderie of the band and not attention on himself. Right. But there's that irony to this that it it is a bright and distinct spotlight on the man and his talents and I couldn't agree more I think you appreciate you come away appreciating his voice so much more in this 
environment, I guess. Um, the, yeah. the Bowie cover was a huge highlight. And then, yeah, Something in the Way, definitely another major highlight on this. Um, I, I actually, I thought the version of Polly was pretty cool, too. Also, I, you know, just, I'm just kind of realizing this now, too, that it's, it's a more personal connection, again, to Cobain in this environment. He's not a part of this thunderous sound like you get on Nevermind. It's, it's, there's, the, there's an intimacy there, if you will. And it, there's a sadness in listening to this, too, because you connect with this artist in a different way, and then you are reminded of how tragically he died, and you're thinking, we needed more of this guy. Absolutely. And to that point, they close with an old traditional as arranged by blues guitarist Lead Belly, who Cobain mentions is his favorite performer ever. Hmm. Where did you sleep last night? My girl, my girl, don't lie to me. Tell me when did you sleep last night? To listen to Cobain sing this always felt like to me the perfect denouement on his music and his life. One critic called it a surreal requiem for Cobain. It's beautiful, searing, and raw. So kind of what you were saying. Mm-hmm. The sadness, I think it's throughout, but this final song really seals the deal. On it. The producers actually wanted an encore, and Cobain wouldn't have it because he just right. refused to believe that he could top this performance. Entertainment Weekly, David Brown felt unsettled listening to this album, and he said, Beyond inducing a sense of loss for Cobain himself, Unplugged elicits a feeling of musical loss, too. The delicacy and intimacy of these acoustic arrangements hint at where Nirvana could have gone. So my fourth favorite album of all time, Kevin guessed it right. MTV Unplugged in New York by Nirvana. Thank you. The Pick Line. Hey guys, this is Brian in Northeast Portland. And I uh, just want to let you know that I've been enjoying the countdown, but there have been tragic omissions from your list. So, here are my top five songs from albums by bands Jeff and Kevin missed on their top 100 list. Number one, the song is Sleeping Lessons. The album from 2007 is Wincing the Night Away, and the band is The Shit. Number two, the song is Pinhead. From 1998, the album is Mania. The band is The Ramones. And that one is kind of a setup to Kevin because Mania is a stacked up album, and I know Kevin likes it. Number three, the song is Alex Eiffel. From 1991, the album is Trump Le Mans. The band is The Pixies. Number four, 
or the song is Glass Hotel from the 1990 album I, Robin Hitchcock. Well, the telephone was ringing in a corridor of blue. A geranium came out of it, reminded me of you, and I was crying. And number five, the song is Radio Radio from 1978, this year's model, Elvis Costello. Those five bands should have appeared on both your guys' lists, but didn't make it. So hopefully my call will somehow remedy that. Thanks, guys. So I feel like I'm being scolded a bit there. Well, yeah, I had the initial thought when I heard that of clearly I'm not in the cool guys club because <laughs> yeah. these are, you know, this is a little bit above my uh, sensibility here with Brian's picks. Although I will say, I think maybe the shame factor is slightly less for me because while I didn't have one of these in my list, I did have an artist from this list in my top 100. So James Mercer is the front man for the shins. He's also uh, one half of Broken Bells. That's right. Okay. So I, I got to at least get like partial points there. I also think Brian gets extra points for his extraordinary skill at posting. I mean, I loved how he was able to make that phone call happen where he was talking and then the songs just come in. I mean, the guy's... Well, we ought to probably give him a job on this podcast somewhere. And the funny part to me is uh, you think that he did that and not me. Well... It, he pulled it off. He pulled the wool completely <laughs> over my eyes. And then I also think he, he he was kind of channeling John Cusack there from High Fidelity, where in one of the conversations in that movie, he's rattling off his top five, and he, and he says, just like Brian did, from the album blank, the song is live. And he, he just, he very Cusackian with his delivery there. I like that. Definitely a, a unique call to the pick line. We haven't had anyone uh, scold us and tell us the songs from certain albums of groups that we should have had. Right. But to review the groups he gave us were the Shins, the Ramones, the Pixies, Robin Hitchcock, and as we're hearing now, Elvis Costello and the Attractions. So thanks, Brian, for that. Number four for me, it's late October, and with that sound you hear, according to lead singer Bono, U2 was officially chopping down the Joshua Tree. It's no secret that the stars are falling from the sky. It's no secret that our world is in darkness tonight. The first single from U2's Octung Baby, somewhat surprisingly, was The Fly. It didn't do very well on the charts, but it did achieve something important. Those first few notes off the Edge's guitar signified something very different was contained in the band's sixth studio album, or seventh if you count Rattle and Hum. All right, we're on a tight race to see who gets the better guesses. I got this one right. You did? No, I, I, again, brace yourself. Jeff's going to have a triumphant moment here before this is all said and done. 
All right, so I have to admit, I was disappointed when I first heard The Fly. I think there's a lot of YouTube fans that felt the same way, and The Fly just didn't perform that well. And the reason I'm saying that is there was a ton of anticipation. You know, what was the next studio album going to be in the wake of Joshua Tree and Rattle and Hum? That disappointment, however, all went away really quickly when just a few weeks later, the second single was released. song of course is mysterious ways i looked it up it was released just a few weeks after the fly and mysterious ways eventually got to number nine on the charts it was their fourth top 10 hit the recording of octung baby took place in berlin and the sessions were fraught with struggle and squabbling among the band members in fact legend has it that the band came perilously close to splitting up but everything was changed by one song is it getting better? Or do you feel the same? The song, of course, is One, which became the third single from Octung Baby and also reached the top ten. Amidst everything that was going on in the studio, The Edge came in with this demo tape, and it suddenly cut through all the tension when they heard the notes that he was playing for this song, One. One love. There were a lot of different interpretations of what this song was about, but over the years, we've sort of settled on this notion that this was about the band struggling with where it was going to go, the tensions that were developing between everyone, and the realization that they could eventually go on and find a new sound, recoalesce, if you will, and put the Joshua Tree and all of that behind themselves. With Octung Baby, U2 wanted to go musically in a completely new direction, and they achieved that goal and then some. After the criticism of 88's Rattle and Hum, U2 shifted their direction to incorporate influences from alternative rock, industrial music, and electronic dance music all into their sound. Thematically, Octung Baby is darker, it's more introspective, at times it's even more flippant than their previous work. And the album and its subsequent multimedia-intensive Zoo TV tour were central to the group's 1990s reinvention. And through that reinvention, they abandoned their sort of earnest public image, which a lot of people were getting really sick of, and they went to a more light-hearted and self-deprecating image. I really like that description of flippin', just want to say because uh, it really does encapsulate the change because what an amazing album Joshua Tree is and then coming out with this almost a 180 in their sound but also their attitude and you're right the whole Zoo TV thing with the super wide angle fisheye lens and the Bono with the big bug eye glasses I right. mean, it was just not Joshua Tree yeah and Joshua Tree was the culmination of this steady buildup of U2 as this socially conscious, political, earnest, do-gooder kind of band. 
And so many people, including many friends of mine, got really sick of that, you know, because it really got just shoved down people's throats. And I think it, it was sort of an inevitability that people were just going to finally just be done with that whole thing. So imagine that. Imagine the, the risk of realizing, OK, we can't really go as a band any higher than we've just gone. We've got to find something different. I, I, I can only imagine there's a, just an immense amount of pressure in trying to pull that off. And Jeff, I was a little slow to warm up to U2's new sound when I first heard this. And over time, especially in 1992, it really became kind of an important companion for me as I started my first job out of college. So I was in the TV news business, working in a small town in central Washington, didn't know anybody. There were several days where it was like just me and my CD collection, right? To try to figure out, okay, how am I gonna do this? How am I gonna fit in? How am I gonna pull off this new job? This album was there as kind of a companion, and I started to discover a lot of the deeper tracks. Some favorites include a song called So Cruel, and then on side two, two songs I really connected with, Acrobat and this song, a track called Ultraviolet. When this made your list... Number 50. Okay, number 50. So it made your top 50, which... Is you know, uh, okay. I'll give you some props for yeah, that. Yeah, because you gave me a little bit of crap back when we yeah. recorded that episode. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> now that I see the whole list in its totality, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you a thumbs up for that. We both saw this concert, and interestingly enough, I think we both had really shitty yes. seats. <laughs> top, <laughs> top row of the Dodger Stadium. Yeah, I was touching the roof of the, of the Tacoma Dome. It was, a, it was a concert experience different from anything that I'd seen. There's a moment where Bono gets on the phone and calls the White House and has a little chit-chat oh, yeah. with the White House operator, and they've got all this multimedia shit flashing and stuff. So it was truly a spectacle. I, I mean, it's widely considered probably their greatest live work, the stuff that's, that, that's captured on that tour. So, Jeff, the ongoing debate among U2 fans, which is the best album? And it typically comes down to, you got the Octung Baby camp over here, you got the Joshua Tree camp over here. I tend to find that those in the Octung Baby camp, they are loyal to this choice for what I would say is a respectable reason. And it's, it's what we've talked about, the impressive and successful change of direction for this band that was the biggest in the world in 1987 with Joshua Tree. They took a big risk, they reinvented themselves, they nailed it. And I think that's, for the Octung Baby fans, that fuels the choice. Also woven into that is some disdain for the wave of Joshua Tree. Not for me, but for a lot of you 2 fans. It's like what I just talked about with Zeppelin. It comes down to these two and it's kind of a coin flip. You'll see in a minute that my decision's a little bit different. <laughs> yeah, well, for me, Joshua Tree was my number uh, 15. Octung was 50, so definitely a, a big difference for me. And even though I love this album, I actually like Zeropa a lot, their follow-up yeah. to this, and then uh, All You Can't Leave Behind. Great albums, but Joshua Tree just can't be beat. And definitely for people that you and I, born in the late 60s, absolutely undeniable, one of the biggest bands in our lifetimes. Absolutely. That's my number four pick from 1991, Octung Baby from YouTube. The Pick Line. Dennis Lyon, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The first one I will go with is the Archangels, their self-titled and only album. Uh, from 1992, produced by Little Steven. My second selection, Muddy Waters Hard Again 
from uh, 1977, and every song on this album to me cuts like a jagged piece of glass, and then it just rubs the gravel in the open wound to make sure that you got the message that this is the blues. Pick three, the Almond Brothers Band, an evening with the Almond Brothers Band, second set. The Almond Brothers are probably my favorite band of all time. I mean, what better way to experience the Almond Brothers than live, right? Pick number four, Quadrophenia, released in 1973, produced by The Who. Hey, this is Pete Townsend's magnum opus, incredible album. Selection number five, Led Zeppelin's first album. Uh, this album, in my opinion, is the greatest debut rock album of all time. I mean, they kicked the door open. They came through it like a tornado stuffed with a lightning bolt and wrapped in a hurricane and took no prisoners and gave no quarter. Oh, yeah. I have the pleasure of picking which song I would play from this, and it's definitely going to be Muddy Waters, Manish Boy, the first track on the album. From Hard Again. Everything gonna be alright this morning. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I was a little distracted. I was jabbing <laughs> yes. a piece of glass into an open wound on my arm. Yes, that was... He had some very brilliant descriptive <laughs> phrases on those calls. Okay, so first thing I think of when I hear this this song is... Uh, yes. Risky Business. It was made a little bit famous in the uh, whorehouse scene from Risky Business. Yeah, and Dennis is a super engaging guy, and... I think he was kind of channeling his like late seventies uh, FM DJ consciousness there with the what was it? Kick down the yep. door, wrapped in a, uh, 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 lightning a bolt, tornado, thunderstorm, a tornado wrapped hurricane. in a lightning bolt, or something like there that. You go. Well, he actually placed five separate calls with one album each, and each call was about two minutes long. So we nice. cut that down from a, about ten minutes <laughs> of material. And, you know, if it adds any more cachet to the call, when he has his goatee grown out, he's a striking resemblance to Dwayne Allman. Oh, so there you that's go. Good. Or maybe it's Greg. I can't remember. I'm a full-grown man. Okay, from Nirvana in the 90s, we go back in time to the 80s, 1987 to be exact. And for me, the opening sounds of this track were nothing short of a musical revelation. Up to this point, I'd been a music fan for years, but that pretty much was limited to rock and pop. I had never really connected to punk, ska, or garage rock. Grunge didn't exist yet, and my interest in alternative music like R.E.M. was in its very early stages. So when I heard this, it was definitely rocking, but it felt different. It was exciting, it was raw, and I could sense my preferences shifting with each listen kind of telegraphing where my tastes would go in the years to follow. The name of the album is Pleased to Meet Me. The band is The Replacements out of Minneapolis. And this is the opening track, I.O.U.
but it was a second track that first caught my attention. And this is a favorite of yours, Kevin. Absolutely. Absolutely. It always takes me back to my first month on campus at WSU because we were playing this, I'm sure, in the power rotation on KUGR. (laughs) That's what I have down. The song is called Alex Chilton, and it was written as an ode to the man, Alex Chilton, who was singer and guitarist of the Box Tops and then later the band Big Star. Chilton was never a huge pop star, but special reverence is held for him in the indie music world. Replacements lead singer Paul Westerberg wrote the hook of the song based on his first meeting with Chilton. When he wanted to compliment Chilton on one of his favorite songs, but couldn't remember the name of it. You mean, give me a ticket on an aeroplane, ain't got time to take a fast train, lonely days are gone, my baby wrote me a letter? That's the box top. No, it was a big star song. <laughs> oh, okay. It was largely through the enthusiasm of our music director at the radio station, Brian Phillips, that I bought the CD and my musical world began to open up. I hadn't really felt this way about an album since 1980, but we'll get to that a bit later. But as the third track played, I realized these guys weren't letting up. The energy and fun in these songs was electric. This was actually the replacement's fifth studio album, but it was the first time I became aware of them. I later found their third and fourth albums, Let It Be and Tim, and I included them lower on my list. But this one was a game changer for me. It was actually the first time the band recorded as a trio, as guitarist Bob Stinson had just left the band. He would be replaced by Bob Slim Dunlap, but not until after Please to Meet Me had been recorded. So the punk feel of their earlier albums had been slowly fading, and while it definitely still feels present on this album, they also delved into other genres, including some more traditional rock sounds, soul, and even cocktail jazz, as you can hear here in the fourth track, Nightclub Jitters. Nightclub Jitters, I'll take a drink before I hit the town. This track and the previous one also included saxophone, a first for the band, and the closing tracks include a horn section and even some strings. This is the fifth track called The Ledge. A bit more straightforward alternative rock, and I think it may best telegraph the sound of their final two albums, which follow. Among Replacements fans, the debate will rage over which of Let It Be, Tim, or Please to Meet Me is their best. Minneapolis music scene guru David Campbell wrote, Please to Meet Me is the finest record The Replacements ever made. Sonically, it is fantastic rich and full of style and swagger. It lands in the sweet spot where technology, team, craft, chops, guts, attitude, ideas, creativity, and some major label money all intersected at the right time for those songs to become what they became. Exploding drums, growling bass, ripping guitars that defied the trends of the time, mostly. This is the penultimate track, Skyway, which Campbell called the great Minnesota love song. And it's the only ballad on the record. You take the skyway, 
Kevin, I remember how excited I was to embrace this record. Yeah. Of course, part of it was I thought it was cool to be into something that alternative before, I remember. before alternative music was a big thing. Yeah. But I can remember staring at the album cover with its retro lettering and color scheme and just listening to it over and over. I consider it the second most revelatory record of my life. Hmm. Yes, I was observing you closely back during those days. We uh, No, we'd only met uh, that summer at the radio station, but I do vividly remember how into this record you were. I don't think we played anything at the station besides Alex Chilton. I don't remember any other replacements tunes. We played one in. more, and that's coming up. Okay. That review you just read from the Minneapolis writer, spot on in my opinion. I, that That's what um, I really enjoyed about listening to this. I'd never listened to it um, all the way through. Really? Listened, listened to bits and pieces here and there. But it just has a complexity to it that Tim and the other one that's in your list, I didn't think had. Those were more stripped, I think, bare-knuckled, I guess, punkish. This one just has such a wonderful exploration of different styles i really liked is it nightclub jitter i really enjoyed that and then the next track the ledge almost instantly reminded me of the song from valley girl called a million miles away by the plimsolls remember that tune and i thought interesting because uh, the review says that this was a fresh sound for the times almost because there were bands doing sounds like this but this record what i really like about it as well is just that Westerberg is willing to sort of stay true to that, I think, his punk ethic and his punk commitment, but then layer on top of that so much other interesting stuff. Yeah, I was happy to find that right up by uh, Campbell because I've often heard from Replacements fans that Let It Be or Tim is the better record, but I've always felt this one was, and I kind of felt, well, I guess it was just because I found it first, and that's why it's my favorite, but in preparing for this episode, I realized, you know what, it's a better record, period. And he's a Minneapolis guy, so I I have to respect what he says. So the other song we played on, on the on the channel was Can't Hardly Wait. Uh, okay. This song you're hearing now. So we've often talked about the significance yeah. of the closing song on oh, an album. Right, right. You've mentioned it often, and I'll make the case that Please to Meet Me includes one of the all-time best closing tracks in Can't Hardly Wait. Hmm. Hurry up, hurry up, ain't you had of stuff? In fact, years ago I started answering the question, what's your favorite song of all time? with Can Hardly Wait by The Replacements. It's just simply pop perfection. It's a wistful tune, ostensibly about touring, but really about longing and loneliness. I'm going to quote David Campbell again because he can write better than I can. Can Hardly Wait is unquestionably The Replacements' greatest song and the epitome of their efforts on this record. Soulful, sweet, sad, and lonely with soaring strings and the Memphis horns, just in case you weren't paying attention. It is power pop perfection, the likes of which the world hadn't heard since Big Star. And for good measure, that's actually Alex Chilton playing guitar on this song. Oh, very cool. Well, I did look it up. Alex Chilton did sing lead on My Baby, She Wrote Me a Letter back in the day. (laughs) And it's, it's a very distinctive, growling sort of vocal performance. Go back and listen to it. But, you know, I think Westerberg's trying to trying to hit those notes. I can't wait 
You can just hear the longing in Westerberg's voice as this song fades. So that's my favorite song of all time, which concludes my favorite replacements record. Wait, 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 wait. And my third favorite album of all time. We just got a revelation here of your all, your favorite it, to this day. Maybe I missed that. That's your favorite song of all time to this day. That's what moment. I just said. Man. I know. I did. I I, I, I wrote that. Well, no, I, I realized that you were saying it, but I didn't realize. I thought you were just saying, "Oh, at the time, it became my favorite." No. I didn't realize that it has stood the test of time to this moment. Wow. Okay. It's a big moment when you when you know somebody for a long time and yet a, a really big piece of that puzzle just <laughs> falls into place. It's pretty cool. So you're listening to the opening track of my number three pick from September of 1969. It's the Beatles swan song, Abbey Road, an absolute masterpiece that Jeff had at number 10. So we covered it in our previous episode, but had to have a Beatles uh, record close to or almost at the top. And boy, Jeff, this was a really tough decision between this one and Revolver for me. But this one gets the edge because it's such an amazing way that this band bowed out on their career. Absolutely agree, and and I think we did a great job. We sampled through the whole album, and it's just an amazing album. And I actually want to play a clip of of you from that episode, since uh, I thought you said some really good things uh, about this record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the Beatles, those are. And these four boys from Liverpool with their dish mop hairstyles are Britain's latest musical and, in fact, sociological phenomenon. Wherever the Beatles go, they are pursued by hordes of screaming, swinging juveniles. Thousands of teenagers in every city and town stand in line all night to get tickets for their touring show. Girls faint when the tickets run out. Yes, that is how I usually try to talk when I am in broadcast mode and have just smoked a pack of camels. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant uh, insight into the Beatles. No, I mean, that that didn't come off of a three-by-five card at all, did it? (laughs) They are pursued by packs of Of screaming (laughs) juveniles. Very nice, very nice. All right, so that was a pick that we shared, and we both had in our top ten. So, we only have two albums each left, Kevin. Yes, Jeff, I believe it's safe to say the excitement has reached a fever pitch. It's boiling over. The perfect point to stop the episode. What do you say? (laughs) Always leave them wanting more, right? Isn't that the golden rule? Exactly. So this concludes part one of this final episode of The Pick. Come back and listen to part two where we cover our top two albums of all time. We can't let go, Jeff. We're just going to keep going. 